Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Alnur Lada and host Michael Lerner. This program is titled Mystical Anarchism, a Spiritual Biography. Alnur Lada, welcome to the new school. Thanks for having me, Michael. You suggested we call this conversation Mystical Anarchism. What does that mean to you? Well, they're, they're two unlikely words <laughs> that in combination, and, and the two words most people are triggered by. Um, and I think that's a good, always a good place to start. Um, the, the idea of, of mysticism is just really about the idea of direct dialogue and direct relationship to the divine. And uh, in some ways, I think it's a more um, palatable word than spirituality, which has been, you know, co-opted and abused and all of those things. Um, so it's, it's a non-institutional spirituality, non-dogmatic um, and, and pathless uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and anarchism is equally polarizing for different reasons. Um, and, you know, anarchism is not anarchy. Anarchism is actually a very sophisticated political philosophy that is about subsidiarity of power, bringing power to where decisions are actually made. Uh, it's about localization of communities. It's about self-organization. And it's really about creativity and the human will and the community's will to decide what is best for them. And so it, it's not outside of law. It's, it's um, I think, more let's say, more tuned to etiquette than it is to law, right? Etiquette is pre-law, it's pre-morality, it's pre-literacy. It's a, a way of being that is in right relation to other human beings, to nature, to the spirits, to the more than human world that exists. Uh, and so I, I, I like putting mysticism and anarchism together uh, because the left has lost its spiritual center. You know, God died for the left in the 1800s. And uh, Marxism, dialectical historicism, socialism, they're, they're all reactions against institutional religion, and, and for good reason. And so as a result, though, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And um, the, the spiritual movements, we won't talk about institutional religion because we know where that has led us. Um, but let's say the New Age movement, for example, lacks a political analysis and an understanding of power and the context we're in as a civilization. And uh, they believe enlightenment is an individual pursuit. And so I think merging these two ideas of spirituality and politics, mysticism and anarchism, is a good starting place for dialogue. Not to say that I have any answers, because that would go against both the mystical and anarchist traditions of, of uh, self-sovereignty and, and uh, individual agency and collective responsibility. You live in a uh, community in Costa Rica that is germane to this conversation. Could you tell us a little about it? Yeah, it's very early days. Um, so we've been there for about three years um, in the northwest jungle of Costa Rica. Um, it's not where we wanted to end up. <laughs> in some ways, it was the last place we, we wanted to be because we just thought there's 
so many alternative communities and healing centers, and let's go do it somewhere more difficult. You know, and we thought we would do it in, in upstate New York. Uh, we, were, we were living in New York at the time. Um, and in retrospect, that was just uh, hubris. Because uh, as easy as it is to, for example, learn how to farm in a place like Costa Rica, uh, if it was any more difficult, we wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, because we were, we were socialized in urban contexts. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is create the conditions for relearning and remembering uh, the the basic aspects of, of being human and and uh, being free as much as one can in a in a interdependent world but more more free from the the power structure and the oxygen that we're all breathing which is neoliberal capitalism it's called Tierra valiente or brave earth yes? yeah 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 it's about three years now. It's about three years. and How many people are there now? There's about 40 of us right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll grow to be about 80 adults and 20 kids or something mm-hmm. like that. It's not huge. It's, our piece of land is about 80 acres, and there's a broader 230-acre commons with the, with the neighboring farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really a community of healers and activists and artists uh, who want to live outside the, the traditional system. Mm-hmm. So there's no money exchanged among the people who live there. It's gift only. Um, the land is put into a trust. The income that does come from the retreat center and the surplus of farming um, is run through a co-op. So profit sharing, joint decision making, no distinction between labor and capital. So if you were one, one person, of, one vote. One person, one vote. So whether you were one of the founders or you're a farmer, you have equal vote, equal profit share, etc. You said something very interesting to me in our conversation over lunch before we began uh, about how the community handles one of the things that tears community apart, which is erotic relationships. How do you do that there? So I think this is one of the the underbellies of our culture that is is actually not an underbelly, right? It's so central to human life, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's shunned upon to be discussed in in public fora. Mm-hmm. And part of that is uh, very deep Judeo Christian Islamic programming and mm-hmm. repression. Uh, and you know, our perspective is, I, I don't believe in, uh, and I'm not going to speak for the community because, again, the, that would breach mystical anarchist mm-hmm. etiquette, mm-hmm. but um, I personally don't believe in either polyamory or monogamy. Mm-hmm. I just believe in truth and context. Um, monogamy, as to, to say I am monogamous before understanding the context of a relationship that evolves over 10 years or 20 years, is, is a predecision. And from a spiritual perspective, to decide on what your arrangement is going to be without understanding the context or the omens or what your ancestors say or how people evolve mm-hmm. is basically telling the universe you don't trust it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not against monogamy as a consequence mm-hmm. of a relationship that's in dialogue and evolving, of mm-hmm. course. Like, mm-hmm. who, who would say no to that? Um, but to, to have it as a foregone conclusion before the exploration even starts, there, there, there's something... Um, odd about that and it, you also also something sinister which is why institutional religion and the state deem it so important that's why you get tax breaks for doing it <laughs> you know um, because it, it makes you complacent and um, 
it, it binds you to the state and to a certain place and it makes you a better taxpayer, essentially, or a tithe payer. Uh, and, and the issue with polyamory I have is it's just another form of consumption, right? Everyone is just, it, it's a form of hedonism and, and um, commodification. And so I believe in truth and context and in the right context, who knows what humans are capable of? But to to create an environment where we at least speak about that and where you're held accountable. Um, and so sometimes I joke that I'm omni-amorous. <laughs> you know, I'm in love with the divine and that's our primary relationship, you know, to use uh, polyamory language, right, because they have their primary partners. Our, we're, our primary relationship for all of us is, is with the divine. How could it be any other way? And, and the divine speaks to us through multiple mirrors and in multiple ways. And so what we try to do is just create a safe space to have that dialogue and to hold each other accountable. And so instead of pretending we are a certain way and then, and then having our, our sort of uh, secret outlets of guilt and shame, it, rather it's let's just hold each other accountable to a set of principles that you yourself have determined. And we as the community are essentially just um, co-counseling and co-facilitating with you. And, and to also say a couple's relationship is not their private matter, you know, and, and that's what we're told in atomized Western society, that what happens in your family unit is your own business, but it affects everyone, and it affects the energetic field. And so if people are unhappy, rather than staying unhappy in their pair-bonded situation, it's better to come to the community and just discuss what's happening. And it doesn't mean we have any say on their... their, their um, the way in which they handle the situation, but at least they can get multiple mirrors. And, and also just to contextualize this, to say th this is not our primary inquiry. No, I understand right? that, but since it's an important part of being yeah. human. Yeah, it is uh, important. And, and I found it fascinating uh, that you raised it in our conversation as, as a piece of it. So uh, speaking of relationship with the divine, I believe that you come from a Sufi family, is mm -hmm. that true? And you were born in Vancouver, mm -hmm. is that correct? Mm -hmm. Vancouver, Canada? Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little about your family of origin. Who, who, where were you born and who, what was the, your family? My family on my, both my mom's side and dad's side are from East Africa. Mm -hmm. My mom's family is from Zanzibar, mm -hmm. the island off of Tanzania. Um, and my dad's family are from Uganda. Mm -hmm. um, they're part of the same tribe, mm -hmm. uh, the Ismailis. Uh, is, the oh, Ismailis, Ismailis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The assassin order, mm -hmm. you know, is, is also what they're they're known as. And they they uh, migrated from Arabia to Egypt, mm -hmm. and uh, they were the the caliphs during the Fatimid period, mm -hmm. and then they migrated to Persia after the mm -hmm. fall of Cairo, um, and then uh, were in exile in Persia for five to seven hundred years, and then some migrated to India, and then Tajikistan, Afghanistan, and and uh, mm -hmm. Pakistan and India, and so my dad's family. Uh, followed that migration pattern. Hmm. And my mom's family ended up in, in, in East Africa, in Zanzibar. And my dad was exiled in 72 by Idi Amin, if you know the Idi Amin yeah. story. And my mom was a midwife in the UK at the time. Um, and yeah, they, they just <laughs> randomly met in Vancouver. And uh, um, I, well, I guess not so randomly. And, and of course, being of the same community, 
there was ways to meet. And yeah, we were all born there and socialized by, by Canadians. How many uh, children? Three, three brothers, all boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Ishmali uh, tribal community is an extraordinary community. You know, in some ways they are, um, and in some ways they, they've um, sort of calcified their belief system. So they went from a very mystical Sufi sect to being um, a sort of commercial sect. Mm-hmm. And, and that happened through an alliance with the British Empire. They, they, they've always been in exile and I think that created an, uh, like a deep insecurity mm-hmm. and so when the proximity to power happened in 17th century Persia mm-hmm. they, they uh, essentially sold out their values mm-hmm. and if you look at um, the Smiley community today most of them are pursuing commercial interests you know there's a, a, their fair share in academia etc they're very successful quote unquote mm-hmm. in rationalist materialist terms um, but the, the Aga Khan of the time, who's their, their imam, their pope, uh, if you listen to what he says, he really pushes them to be successful in the countries they live in because they're mostly immigrants. Uh, there's no homeland. Mm-hmm. And so I understand the strategy, right, because it's a strategy of integration. And he understands that there's a capitalist environment. And mm-hmm. if you're successful within that environment, you're seen as um, worthy, Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, there is uh, no point of view on climate change, our current crisis, the context we're in, and uh, the old immigrant ideal of, of uh, pursuing wealth in order to have your overlord's approval doesn't make sense in this context. We have 10 years, maybe 20 years left of the Western way of living. Um, and so I, I have a strong critique of them in that sense, uh, uh, from an economic perspective, and I also think spiritually, the, if you if you come from the, the, the space where uh, this mystical tradition, which the Smileys do, um, and you say, well, the the aim of our spiritual practice is to enter unity consciousness, well, then what, the path to get you to that unity consciousness, if that itself calcifies and institutionalizes institutionalizes and creates a context in which you uh, spend the majority of your time with your own community, your alms and your charity and your generosity is focused on that community. You are therefore creating separation and the initial intent of unity consciousness is defeated by the tribalism that you've created. And so if our circle of empathy is not expanding through our spiritual practice, then what are we doing? We're going to follow two threads here and dance back and forth between them because I do, as I told you, want to do a spiritual biography here. And so we're, we're launched in that into your family of origin and the Ishmali tribe and its loss of its origin of seeking the divine and unity and becoming more commercial in exile. Um, but uh, since you've raised uh, your sense that we have 10 or 20 years left, um, what is your analysis of where we are in this world today? There's multiple ways to, to answer this, and, and, and maybe the way I'll, I will go is, is through the, the historic lens, because I think it's important to, to presence that. 
and, and say, um, you know, I, I don't believe that there was some um, homeostasis of Eden, some perfect place that, that we left. Uh, but I do think that there was a time where we were living in deep symbiosis with nature. We were living in small uh, hunter-gatherer tribal communities, uh, which, which were, and you know, we, we know this from cultural anthropology and evolutionary anthropology and biology and psychology, that we, we were living in largely peaceful tribes with very little hierarchy, uh, living quite leisurely lives, and the average working time was 10 hours a week. Um, from bone density samples, we know we were having roughly 2,000 calories a day. There was no real, there was no sort of chief in that, in that sense that was the accumulator of all goods uh, the, the way we have now. And, you know, Marshall Salins calls this the original affluent society. And, and the, the discovery, if you want to call it that, or uh, of, of farming and the Neolithic Revolution that led to sedentary lifestyle created a situation in which um, we, had, we sort of tamed nature, if you will. We extracted. And, and we were not of, of place in the same way. We didn't go to the mother for our nourishment and bounty. We started to believe it was our own ingenuity that led to our being fed. And that disconnection, that original disconnection, that, that is the fall from Eden in, in, in some ways. And not to say we want to go back to a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, but we don't want to you know, be, go, go back to the Paleolithic, but we want to learn to be of the Paleolithic in, in the sense that there were psychic powers that we had, there was a remembering that we had, and I think a lot of the grief we hold right now is also a grief of being born into a culture where that no longer exists. And so the situation we're now in is, you know, from, from we, we, we know that the first physical structures were, were ziggurats and places where we uh, held the surplus of, of, of farming. And as soon as you have a surplus, you then have uh, some kind of military to protect that surplus and then a hierarchy that manages that armed force. And then the, the, it's symbolized in the ziggurat itself where the high priests, where the king or sun king or emperor was at the top and then the high priests and then the military class and then the, the, the lower castes were, were, you know, at the bottom. And, and that hierarchical structure is the antithesis to uh, a, a biomimetic social structure that, that mirrors nature and mirrors harmony and mirrors life. And so where we are, you know, from, from Ur and Babylon to, you know, modern times is a very short period of time. And it didn't just happen in that way. We had um, a set of contextual factors, which is that type of hierarchical structure rewards psychosis, right? That's essentially what it does. If you are good at manipulation and hoarding power and selfishness and greed and avarice, you climb up that hierarchy. And so this is the birth of patriarchy. 
and men being uh, physically smarter, uh, physically stronger and less intelligent in, in ways that matter, um, were rewarded in that system. And, and again, that's not to say uh, it's the fault of males, right? Because it's much more complex than that, right? You have a social structure that we were all invested in uh, that created those types of outcomes. And then you amplify that with uh, monotheism, which is a form of fascism, how could, it, how could it be anything else when you say that there's only one way to the divine and it's this way that came from this prophet in this particular time? So the, the marriage of um, hierarchy, uh, a, a cultural system that rewarded psychosis, married with monotheistic religion and the invention of guns, germs, and steel and uh, other sort of military innovations created the context that brought us to the situation where we're now, you know, as, as Wendell Berry says, we are a species out of context. And so we're, we're now in this place where we know our industrial activity, i.e. globalized capitalism, is creating climate change. You know, climate change is, is not man-made, as we're told. It's capital-made. Every dollar of wealth created is heating up the planet. Every dollar of wealth created, 93, 94 cents, ends up in the hands of the top 1%. So by definition, capitalism creates inequality. It creates poverty. It creates climate change. And it is, um, these are not externalities. These are the logical outcomes of the Neolithic revolution. These are the logical outcomes of hierarchy, of patriarchy, of disconnection from nature. And the, the state we're in is, um, it's an evolve or die moment for us as a, as a civilization and as a species. And I think that's the, that's the place we're now at. Uh, uh, 10 years ago, I think it was, you founded an organization called The Rules. Is that Mm -hmm. And uh, you've just been closing it now. Uh, tell us about the rules and why it relates to what we've just been talking about. Um, so the rules started in 2012. So at the end of this year will be eight years oh, okay. and, and we close. But when we started, we, we said we'd close after 10 years okay. of the organization. And then in 2015, we reevaluated and decided to close at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. um, and for... For multiple reasons, um, but just to say what we do first, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, when we started, it was a, it was a post-Occupy world. Uh, a few of us met at Occupy in, in, in 2011, and uh, we saw both the, the power of decentralized um, citizen movements, and we also saw the paralysis that comes with horizontalism. And um, being united on a sort of political critique, but not having a spiritual basis for the world we want to see and having no real point of view on what does the post-capitalist world look like. And we didn't pretend to have the answer. We just said, let's go into inquiry together on what the alternatives are and what the post-capitalist worlds in plural could be. And uh, we started uh, an organization that sort of did three things. Um, we, we had a think tank arm that sole aim was to get more radical ideas into the mainstream uh, and make them feel like common sense. So we did an exploration of alternatives like universal basic income, regenerative agriculture, um, post-growth economics. And then 
worked with cognitive linguistics and memetics and evolutionary theory and other ideas and tried to tell the best argument of why those ideas are important. Um, we it's called the Memetics Institute, right? Uh, yeah, at, at a point it was called the Memetics Institute, uh, and it sort of evolved, and it sort of now spun out into its own um, cooperatively run consultancy called Culture Hack Labs. Okay. Um, which I sit on the board of, but I'm, I'm not. And that will continue? And that will continue, okay. yeah. And a few organizations have sort of come out, and non-organizations, really. Um, and then the other part was an organizing arm that worked directly with social movements, largely peasant movements, farmer movements, indigenous movements, largely in the global south, to create connective tissue, uh, and to say that it doesn't matter if you're fighting... Uh, pipeline in North Dakota or your land is being displaced by a World Bank project in Kenya um, or Monsanto in Latin America, you're, we're all being affected by the logic of neoliberal capitalism. And it's not an us versus them, one bad guy versus, you know, it's, it's the logic of a system which is articulated by a set of rules that are generative. And these rules are man-made and I don't say human-made, they're, they're man-made and therefore can also be changed. And um, so Hence the name, The Rules. Hence the name, The Rules. In other words, the, the idea was that there are a set of rules that uh, are the logical way that uh, late-stage capitalism works. Expresses right? itself. And expresses itself. And you were interested in discovering how those rules could be changed to mm -hmm. create a, a sustainable and just world. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And how they could also be exposed and disrupted. And, uh, and then the third aspect which yeah. connects them is that we, we ran a program called um, the Activist Ashram, which was a fellowship for frontline organizers, um, largely movement leaders and what we call the young elders in these movements. And they weren't NGO people. Uh, they were people who were working two jobs or whatever to, to be their community organizer and to, to really do that important resistance work. And so we wanted to give them some funding so they could be free for a year um, and to bring them together twice a year for an opening circle and a closing circle to share their wisdom and other ways of knowing and being. And so that was more of a, a spiritual fellowship, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, and this sort of shared practice, everything from meditation techniques to um, personal self-care to plant medicine traditions that came from their regions, um, to really create that type of... Uh, yeah, relational tissue, you know, mm -hmm. if you will, as, as white blood cells um, to, to what was happening in the world. And, and, and in many ways, I, I see that spiritual work as the central work, even though it, it might not have been our primary focus. It sort of infused every other aspect of the work, whether it was the think tank work, the organizing work, or, or the, the fellowship work. Are you going to leave the website up for a while? Because I think it's a beautiful website. Yeah, website. we're going to do a new, a new site that okay. goes live at the end of this year that'll have uh, case studies and yeah. some documentaries. It's a beautiful website, therules.org. And uh, people presumably will be able to link through that to whatever the... Yeah, exactly. Is. exactly. Um, I thought one of the... I mean, let me just back up for a moment. I, after I met you and just thought you're most, um, the most gifted servant of life, um, 
And so I asked a few people in New York who knew you from your days with a prior organization in New York where you were doing political strategy work for the, you know, uh, for the movement. Um, and I would say to people, so do you know Elnor Lada? And, and people, basic response was, he's an incredibly smart guy and he was really good at what he was doing and I don't know what he's doing now. That was kind of the, the New York take. And mm -hmm. so... Um, but one of the things that struck me that was, I thought, strategically so powerful was that when you founded the rules, you didn't do what most people would do, which would be to select different NGOs around the world to work with. You decided to work with popular movements. And to me, there is such uh, intelligence and brilliance in that. And I want to ask you to say a little bit about how you came to the decision to work with popular movements as opposed to NGOs, and to give us some examples of what that work actually was and how that worked out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is why I, I often say that the people, especially in the spiritual community, will say to me, well, what's the most important thing I can do? And the, the thing I always say is um, understand how neoliberalism works. <laughs> you know, understand how capitalism works because it, it is the very oxygen in which we are breathing. It has intermediated every aspect of our lives. Just think about the, the, our priorities, our focus, what we do, why we do it, the role money plays. And, and it's an, money is just an invention, right? Debt-based capital is just an invention. Compound interest is just an invention. And so to not study these things is, is insane to me. And so sp spending time studying how capitalism works, the, the primary logic of capitalism is very similar to monotheism. It is a form of primacy. It's a monoculture. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Alnur Lada and host Michael Lerner. If we look at what the logical outcome of capitalism would be, we would all be wearing Nike shoes and having Apple computers and Microsoft Office and listening to Beyonce or, or whatever you know the corporate music world wants us to listen to. It just funnels into this sort of monopoly corporate power, and it's a it's a flywheel effect. It feeds itself, and so the more power certain corporations have, the more they can buy the political process through money and politics, um, the more they can exploit labor, change laws to further exploit labor laws and environmental laws, um, and uh, find the cheapest labor wherever they are in the world. And so the cycle just speeds itself up. And so the antidote to monoculture is polyculture. Many ways of being, many ways of knowing, many tongues. And so when we started to understand that and see that, we, we thought, well, where, where, where is the sort of polyculture resistance, you know? Where is the, the sort of animistic impulse for life that goes against the, the you know, the five M's of, of the apocalypse? Five you know, M's? Yeah, monotheism, mm -hmm. monoculture, mm -hmm. monotony, mm -hmm. uh, monogamy, mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, I'm blanking on the fifth, but we'll call them the four. Money? Yeah, uh, yeah and perhaps money itself, yeah. 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 Um, and and um, 
that really when when you think of it that way, the the place to look is is popular resistance because that's where the intelligence is. And so the first thing we wanted to do was support indigenous movements and indigenous resistances that were doing this work. Um, and and also understanding the you know one of those uh, five M's is is monoculture and and food is sort of central to this to this struggle and and in some ways the most radical act we can do is grow our own food because the entire globalized capitalist system is is dependent on making you disintermediated from where your food comes from and you know a lot it's interesting right a lot of progressive people will say, I'm going to stop flying. And it's like, well, actually, our primary objective should be stopping the flow of goods and services globally. That's why climate change is happening. That's how capitalism works. Whether you fly or not is really insignificant. Even if everyone stopped flying, that's less than 5% of emissions. You know, whereas... uh, um, Just the the food sector, just in... in, in, uh, Food production is probably 40%, right? And then about 25% in the transportation of those goods and services around the world, right? And so uh, we started working with farmer movements and peasant movements and, and understanding their struggle for, for food sovereignty. Um, and, and from that led to understanding the struggle of landless people's movements and, and other popular movements. So how do you... Give us one example of how you have worked with such a movement. What did it actually look like? Yeah. So uh, a good example is um, part of the the work has been to understand the rules at the global level, right? Understanding Mm -hmm. how this oxygen works and then also being in solidarity with um, the majority. And, and, And a good example of that was through the tax justice work. And so when we started to diagnose and dissect the way capitalism works, you know, one way the flywheel effect I was talking about of corporate power happened is not just money in politics and exploiting labor and changing laws and uh, all of that. It's through not paying tax, right? The majority of corporations do not pay tax. That's why outside of their home country, which is largely Western Europe or the United States, and that's why uh, the, the sort of state corporate complex is so deep. Uh, because as long as they're paying tax at home, part of the neo-imperialism is you go and do whatever you want anywhere else, uh, and and the revenue still stays at home. And and what's interesting is if you look at something like development, so-called development, uh, that sort of Gates and Bono and USAID and all these people sort of pretend is a form of philanthropy, um, you, you see the way cash flow really works, right? So all of aid from rich countries to poor countries is about $120 billion a year. That's what they call OAD, Overseas Assistance Development. Um, just in tax evasion, these uh, so-called developing countries are losing about $1.2 trillion a year. So 10 times all of aid just in tax evasion. So the same countries that are giving money to these so-called poor countries are, in, are protecting and encouraging their corporations to avoid tax through transfer mispricing and and a whole sort of other complex things. And when you follow the money, you realize the center of this empire is the the city of London. And and the city of London corporation, it's a private corporation, uh, is is the square mile. It's what they call, the square mile is their version of Wall Street. And it's privately owned. It's the, you could see it as the Vatican of wealth extraction. It's where all 14 major banks have their head offices. Um, It's run in an old... uh, 
um, sort of council system. They have aldermen and councilmen. They have their own mayor, which is the Lord Mayor of London, who's separate to the, the mayor of London. Um, and we started doing a campaign on exposing the City of London Corporation and, and saying, you know, you want to talk about corruption in, in the global south and tin pot dictators, but the world's corruption is created and enabled by the global north through this tax haven system. So all the tax havens, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, etc., the, the reason they're tax havens is because they're backed by the Queen. Um, and they, they, they're um, exempt from... For, for that reason. So they're part of this sort of tentacle empire. And then we started following the activity of the Lord Mayor of London, and we realized he's essentially the lobbyist-in-chief for the global tax haven system. That's his job. He goes around creating more tax havens so the, the, the spider web gets more complex and it's harder to track the money. And in the end, about 60% of the world's wealth flows through the city of London because of this tax haven system. And so we found out he was pushing... Uh, he had had meetings with Kenyatta... Um, who, was, who was at the time uh, trying to get into power in Kenya. His, his father was the former prime minister. And so in 2012 and 13, he had multiple meetings with Kenyatta. And after Kenyatta came into power, he announced there's going to be this uh, sort of uh, tax-exempt area of Kenya where major corporations could have their home base and not pay tax. And this is how they get away with it, right? They pretend they're in the job creation business when they're really in the extraction business. And the power elite of that country know that and have that relationship and are allowing them to do it. So it's not just a north-south thing. It's a one-percenter thing, <laughs> you know? And, and so... Um, what we so we started watching this and what they were doing with the sort of special tax zones and and then all of a sudden he announced that there was going to be a 16% uh, value added tax basically on on uh, staple items for poor people maize flour corn so essentially what they were doing was giving tax breaks to the rich and asking the poor to carry the load and that was the deal that Kenyatta had made with the, the Lord Mayor of London in order to get into power. And so we, we were just watching this situation and, and connecting the dots, and we had hired an investigative journalist, a very well-known investigative journalist in Kenya, to, to follow the Lord Mayor when he was in town and, uh, and, and other things. And so we sort of released this research to some of the key movements in, in Kenya, and there was a sort of coalition that was born that came together um, called Kenyans for Tax Justice and included everyone from big international think tanks like Tax Justice Network um, to community organizations like uh, Bungela Mwama, the People's Parliament, um, the Women's Parliament, Bungela Menancha, the, the People's Parliament, disability organizations, food rights organizations, farmer organizations, landless people's groups. And... Uh, what happened is this, they created this umbrella organization called Kenyans for Tax Justice. And uh, they basically, through community organizing, informed everyone in their respective communities what was actually happening. And there became a popular resistance against this tax. And we, we renamed the tax from VAT, which, you know, value-added doesn't sound like a bad thing, to Unga tax, Unga's maize flour. It's something... Uh, Ordinary people just inherently understand. As soon as you're taxing their unga, it's, you know. And it became this widespread popular movement, and the, the bill was killed. And so that's a good example of just supporting local movements, yeah. connecting to what's happening at the global level, and also creating a sense of empathy that we're all being affected 
by the globalization and concentration of power, which is essentially what's happening. So having how many experiences like that with significant policy outcomes that helped people, would you say that the rules engaged in over the eight years that it's been active? You know, it's interesting even, even telling you that, that last story. I, you know, I don't believe in, in, in success. Um, no, I understand. Yeah, in, in that way. We're obviously losing I'm just battle, trying to right? get an order of magnitude yeah. sense because your analysis to me is deeply sophisticated. You, I'm not talking about a success. Yeah. But I'm talking about, I asked you for an example. You gave me an example. If we had the time, I could ask you for a set right, of other right, examples. Yeah. But what my curiosity then is, to what degree did you learn, let's put it that way, over this eight-year period, that this approach could be truly helpful mm -hmm. in other contexts? I would say probably a, a handful of times there's been... Um, moments where we, we, we realized that, like, the power of this, what we call culture hacking work, which is not traditional campaigning. It's not advocacy work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, you know, appeal to the person in power uh, sort of model of, of, of social change. It's more about changing the cultural climate in which these things are happening. Mm -hmm. And so if ordinary people just don't accept there could be a tax on UNGA, There's, that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's going to upset the Lord Mayor's plans and Kenyatta's plans, and it's going to... And, and then you have to be responsive to that and what happens next. And, and But I would say for every time this has been... We've learned from it, and, and we see the, the power of it. There's been a handful of times where it's been unsuccessful, yeah. and it doesn't work. Yeah. And part of it is just testing and reiterating. And, and, and also re realizing that... You know, our best thinking got us here, <laughs> you know? And so to not be attached to one way of doing anything and, and also to, to be in the humility of knowing that we, we are failing, if you want to use such extreme dichotomous words, in the bigger battle. And, and at the same time, there is no linearity. And so um, the, the cause and effect of what we're doing is, is uh, forced in order to have those conversations with funders and other people where you have to explain what you do. And it's like, you know, I believe in more of a quantum ethics, you know, entanglement and co-agency and context. And there's so many forces at play. And to say that we did that, mm -hmm. you know, which is what funders want you to say, and that's how fundraising happens. But it goes against our, our moral code, which is it just doesn't work like that. It's, mm -hmm. You can be part of something, but you, you, you don't affect change in that way. Uh, you were kind enough to introduce me to the editor of Cosmos, and I wrote a piece for them, uh, which I was grateful to you for doing. And I was looking at the pieces that you um, have written for Cosmos, and um, one is called uh, Grief, Collapse, and Mysticism, and uh, another is called Seeing Watiko, a word I don't know, Capitalism, Mind, Virus, and Antidotes for a World in Transition, and then a piece on mystical anarchism. So um, let me just take a few minutes to talk about an analysis that both of us are somewhat involved with, uh, which uh, some people think about as the civilizational collapse uh, theory, 
And others, people say it's not going to collapse, but it's going to drastically change. Um, but the basic analysis is that it's far, we're facing far more than climate change. The climate change is not only true, but sucking the oxygen out of the room for everything else that's going on. Some people get to the point where they talk about climate change and poverty or injustice as the two things. But the way many of us look at it is that there are all the environmental stressors, uh, there are the social stressors, and there are the technological stressors, maybe two dozen to name a, a number. And that these two dozen stressors interacting in completely uh, unpredictable ways have created a perfect storm in which, uh, as there's a wonderful quote from the science fiction writer William Gibson, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. So we have these countries that are clearly in complete collapse now, whole regions, almost whole continents in collapse. And then we have other countries that are, are regions that are degrading very rapidly. And you know there are serious scientific debates right now about whether of the nine billion people on Earth, one billion will be alive in another 20 years. You know, mm -hmm. and that's being seriously debated. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, seriously debated. So the question becomes: there's, there are multiple questions. One is when we talk about this, there are a lot of people just want to run screaming from the room. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, they're either in denial about it, or it hurts too much to think about, or they've got more important things to think about in their lives. There are other people who, for whatever reasons, are designed to look at this stuff. You know, they're just designed to look at this stuff. I happen to be one of the people who is designed to look at this. You happen to be one of the people who's designed to look at this. Um, and so, here we are. There's been some important work done, uh, in fact, I think it was in the Atlantic, could have been in Harper's, about people who know too much about the climate scientists and what it's like for them to know, live with what they know. But if you're talking about the people who are living with the civilizational collapse scenario, my God, you know, it's not just those two things, it's the whole enchilada. And so you and I are going to speak at a, a funder meeting in the next few days, and my little pocket message to funders has been, there are tens of thousands of foundations and hundreds of thousands of NGOs working on every important silo issue under the sun, but there are very few foundations and very few NGOs that are looking at the whole enchilada. And in fact, if we don't look at the whole enchilada, we will be far less prepared to survive this bottleneck that all of life is coming through, biodiversity, humanity. There's this bottleneck, and we're entering it, and, you know, uh, what is it, three billion birds lost in North America since 1970, you know, insect Armageddon all over. You know, we could just multiply all the examples. So, um, there are many questions that this raises. For one thing, it raises deep psychological and spiritual questions about not only how do we live with this, but what do we tell our children, you know? How do, we, how do we communicate with our children, with our communities? How do we speak the truth about what is happening and at the same time create an environment where one can live with some hope and some peace of mind about what we're moving into without denying it in any way? So there's the psycho-spiritual dimension of it. And then there's the question of what does resilience look like? 
What does it look like for the family level? What does it look like at the community level? What does it look like at the regional level, national, global, and so on and so forth? So I'm just opening that up because you and I are going to be speaking mm -hmm. about this with Pete Myers and uh, another friend in a few days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious, um, how do you hold this? And how can you imagine the exploration that can lead us toward a deeper way of being with this? Mm -hmm. well, that's a beautiful question. In some ways, the only question. Right? It is. And, and, um, I feel like partly what's happening right now to us culturally is that we're being initiated into non-dualistic thought. Mm -hmm. to, to be able to hold not just two, but multiple perspectives simultaneously. And, you know, the, in the Vedic traditions, they, they call this period that we're in the Kali Yuga. The Kali Yuga, right. The Dark Ages. And, and what's interesting about the, the, the Dark Ages is it's not... We, we, we just know the shorthand of Kali Yuga, but if you look at the, the, the texture around what is said about the Kali Yuga, it's the, the point of bifurcation. So it is the, the strongest amount of darkness and psychosis and shadow, but also the most amount of light mm. and the most amount of assistance we get from interdimensional beings and spirits and guides and ancestors and, and, and all of that. And so... Um, that itself is a non-dualistic thought. It's simultaneous extreme shadow and extreme light. And, and, and that's why many of us go through these sort of waves and, and cycles of, of uh, uh, feeling bliss we've never felt and meeting people uh, that we feel so connected to uh, in, in a period of time that used to take us 10 years to get to where we get to in, in evenings sometimes now, you know. And then we turn on the television and we see Trump, Putin, Netanyahu, and the deepest level of despair, right, uh, uh, sort of simultaneously engulfs us. And uh, this is an initiation into non-dualistic thought. And I don't think it's just some people, okay, clearly there are going to be people who are better trained because of history, epigenetics, disposition, et cetera, et cetera, in non-dualistic thought. But we're all going to be initiated into non-dualistic thought, whether we like it or not. Um, and, and it's not just non-dualistic thought. It's non-dualistic embodiment. It's being able to, to live and, and be in relationship to multiple truths simultaneously. And... What that is going to require is a very deep unlearning and deprogramming of everything we think we know and everything we've been socialized into being. And that includes um, the, the things we hold on to hardest, like our religiosity, our belief in what the family unit should be, our belief in what gives us safety. Because it's actually these desires that are creating the system we live in. It's our desire for the comfort of continuing to live the way we live. You know, George Bush, the American way of life is not up for question. And well, it's like, if you're negotiating with Mother Earth, I think it is, whether you like it or not. And, and so part of the birth canal that we are in is going to be a deep dissolution of uh, our identities and our 
old programming and patterns. And yes, this can be painful. Uh, and at the same time, it doesn't have to be. And, and that's just a non-dualistic thought. And it, it's uh, both the deepest levels of grief and gratitude simultaneously. They're just the, the two hands of prayer, as, as Francis Weller says. That's what grief and gratitude are. And, and, and that's the, this is the sort of point in the birth canal where we, we, we have to sort of transcend the subject-object duality to see that there is no other, and also be deeply rooted in our cultures, be deeply rooted in our prayers, be deeply rooted in our ancestral relationships, because they're living through us. And, and this is partly what's happening, is, is uh, we're all in the redemption business. Of, of some sort. And, and that is happening through the way in which we're living our lives. And what the external, if you want to call it context, or you want to, it's so much bigger than context. Even the idea of nature is problematic because it, the language itself implies some separation. And so what, what the, the, the context or the womb that we're in is showing us is um, everything we thought we believed has to disintegrate in, in order for a new way to be born. It doesn't mean we won't get back to the same place. The, the things that we believe are important to us may very well be where we end up again. And when I, when I look at that, I, I, I see aspects of the way we live, like cooperation and partnership and altruism and generosity and uh, kindness. And, I don't think those things are going to be dissolved uh, on the other side of this catastrophe. I think we are going to be brought closer to whatever impulse in us had that in the first place. And what it also requires is um, shifting our relationship from one of uh, abstraction, which has come from scientific, materialist, rationalist thought, to one of deep immersion. And, and one of deep animism, where we see the living planet and the living universe as not outside of us, but we are in dialogue with it. And these are just omens. And the, the end of this story does not have to be catastrophe, because that's just another linear thought. Miracles of all sorts can happen. Spontaneous evolution of all types could happen. But what it does require is... Um, being able to go into this animistic field that is actually our natural language. You know, we, we are naturally that way outside of the programming of, of sort of rationalist linear thought. And, and also to, to be in the relativism, to understand that everything is relative to everything else. That's what it is to, that's the definition of interdependence. And so, uh, and, and the other aspect is also the commodification that comes with selfishness. So as soon as we are doing something for the end of, of self-gain, uh, that's just going to contribute to where we are. So all those shadow aspects of ourselves are just being mirrored back to us. And, and we're essentially being shown that we can no longer, no longer live that way. And one way to comprehend uh, the climate catastrophe is grief. And we could stay in that or we could say grief is a necessary emotion in order for us to allow parts of ourselves to die, to then also be in the gratitude for the parts of ourselves that are being born. And that's the non-dualistic approach. That's a non-dualistic approach to collapse. So I heard you say something 
profound, uh, significant. Um, and please correct me if I do not remember this accurately. You said this does not have to end in catastrophe. This does not have to end in catastrophe. You said that the grief about climate and everything else is a necessary component, but we don't want to be stuck there. There are parts of us that are dying. There are parts of us that are being born. And that if we hold it that way, um, that this period of Kali Yuga, which we think of only as the darkest age, we miss the equal power of the light, that all kinds of miracles are possible and happening, and that all kinds of forces, of many of which we don't have any notion, are there to come to our assistance. Yeah? All right. So, in your new community, um, the brave earth, What do you say to the children about what is happening? In, in language a child can understand. Suppose that instead of us in the room, you had a group of eight to 12 year olds, mm -hmm. and they were saying to you, Al Noor, you have thought a lot about this. We see, like, as you know, over the last two days, children have been marching all over the world about the climate crisis. Um, what would you say to the children? Yeah, I, I like to start with, with first principles. And what I would say is when we access reality, what we realize is there's actually only one of us. That's what all the mystical truths lead to. And so we are in multiple form, in, in, in multiple beings, and the thing that is happening is bigger than any one individual mind can understand. And um, that's okay. You know, no one has the answer. You know, even the idea of, of us sitting here and the idea of expertise is, or the idea of the, the student and the teacher is problematic. Um, and it doesn't mean it's not true. It's, again, one truth. And the, 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 the student and the teacher and the guru and the disciple, the, these things are just happening simultaneously. And it's just roles and functions we're playing. And so I would explain the story in that way. Not to say that there is other, but there is also other. And 
in the story of what's happened that there are people who are benefiting from the system. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Alnur Lada and host Michael Lerner. You know the story of Kalki. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Kalki? Yeah. So, so Kalki is um, the tenth and final incarnation of Vishnu. So, in the in the Vedic tradition, in the Hindu texts, um, Krishna was the the third or fourth incarnation of Vishnu. You know, there's the the tripartite system, the the three major deities, um, Brahma, the first breath. Um, uh, Shiva, the destroyer, and Vishnu, the sustainer. And Vishnu comes ten times on earth in, in various forms. And one of those was Krishna, who's the, the, the Christ of the, the Vedic tradition. And in his tenth and final form, he comes as Kalki. And Kalki rides a white horse, and he has a light sword, and he chops the heads of all the capitalists. <laughs> this is actually the yantra of Kalki. And, and, so what you're showing us, you just rolled up your sleeve <coughs> and on your elbow or on the inner side of your elbow, whatever that part of our body is called, you have this yantra. Yeah, it's the yantra of Kalki. The yantra of Kalki. And, and the yantra is just a visual mantra. Right. And, and so, but, but Kalki is non-dual in his thought, right? Because Kalki understands that he's just chopping off the heads of other parts of himself, because there is no other. When you access reality at the highest level of, of unity consciousness, there is only this one divinity expressing itself in all these other forms. But that doesn't mean there's not agency. And that's what we have to understand. That's the non-dual thought, which is we can't spiritually bypass and say, well, there's only oneness. Well, there's only oneness and some people are more responsible than others, and some people are benefiting more than others. And, and uh, I, I think that's actually important to tell children, you know, to, to be, not to treat them as children or not to treat them as students, but to bring them into the initiation of non-dual thought very early on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's what the great mythology always did. And what we started doing, uh, largely because of Western materialist rationalist thought, which is um, largely operates in metaphor, we started uh, taking our metaphors literally and, and started using metaphor to separate, right? And to say, well, oh, that's a character in a play instead of that's just an aspect of you. If, if you look at ancient animistic tradition, even Western European tradition, you know, the Vikings were not praying to Thor, when they were spear fishing in the fjords, they just became Thor. That was the point of inventing God. And, and um, you know, even the, the Old Testament says, I am that which is becoming. And, and I think that's the story to, to tell children, is that evolution is not happening outside of us. So... So, so it's, all, it's almost making them take responsibility for what is happening. And they can also say, it was your generation who did this. And, and that's also true. It, it's sort of, the, you know, there's that old Ram Das line where he says, the universe is perfect, including my desire to change it. Mm -hmm. That these things are not happening outside of us. So you can try to comprehend the story on an intellectual level. And you can try to say, well, what's the causality? And who are the actors? And whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. And the answer is both. 
it's your fault as an incarnate being. And there are people who benefited more than others from the Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. That's just the, the, the nature of oneness playing out the cosmic drama in multiple forms. And so, so does that answer the yes, question? that's good. Sort of, in an abstract... But it raises another question. Yeah. Um, you are suggesting to the children that they understand themselves as both the separate entities, but also this oneness. Mm -hmm. And you described how the Vikings, when they were stabbing the fish in the fjords, uh, didn't pray to Thor, they became Thor. And you have this yantra on your uh, uh, arm that is the yantra of, what's the word? Kalki. Kalki who comes on his white horse with a white sword and chops off the heads of the capitalists. So my personal question to you, uh, because this is a spiritual biography, mm -hmm. is do you experience the force of Kalki or some other uh, trans-personal entity within yourself? You know, I think there's a time, there's also a time to pray to beings outside of yourself. It's not just all embodiment. Again, it's non-dualistic thought. And, and so, uh, do I pray to Kalki? Yeah. And I also pray to Kali, um, because I think it's also her time. Um, and I also pray to Allah and to, to cosmic consciousness itself and to the spirits and to the elements and to interdimensional beings and extra-dimensional beings and, uh, for, for assistance right now. Um, do I want to play the role of Kalki? No. Hmm. Uh, I believe in nonviolence. Would, would I observe Kalki chopping off the heads of those who benefit, including myself? Hmm. Yes. Would I take satisfaction in that? Well, I don't know what state of being I'd be in <laughs> while I'm in observance of that. So how do you pray? You know, I, I think it's it's a highly personal uh, act, and um, you know. You can say no. Yeah, no, no, no. I, it just depends. You know, I, I'm a big believer in contextual truth. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, th this is why the idea of um, a church or a mosque was always anathema to me, which was they they were telling me how to pray, and and that makes no sense mm -hmm. to a mystic, because uh, you know. In the Sufi tradition, um, we, we talk a lot about walking prayer. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the point of prayer is not to create a sequestered part of your life while, while uh, you are praying to something outside of you. It's just to be in awareness that you are Allah becoming self-aware. Mm -hmm. Your consciousness becoming self-aware. And that is a process and, and, and uh, one way to access that process can be dance and music and tantra and eros. And, and um, another way could be um, to pray for other beings, which is a very strong part of the Sufi tradition. You know, how, how do you walk into a room 
and pray for every being and their ancestors and their healing and their lineages and their karmic redemption and also the wind and the moon and the stars and the ancestral forces and all these seen and unseen and visible and invisible things happening in the context you're in all the time. And, and that's the practice of zikr. That's the practice of um, being in the mantra and being in the devotion. And um, for, for me, part of that practice is political work. I don't see... Um, the point in spiritual work outside of the application of that spiritual work to the context we're in. And you know, there's that old Buddhist line that says, um, enlightenment does not happen in the cave, it happens in the mouth of the lion. Well, this is the mouth of the lion. This is the application of our spiritual work, is testing it in real time by... Um, trying to redress the imbalance of power in the world and um, confronting your own demons and your own shadow that come up when you do political work. And, and this is what we see in the world of political activism is um, people are not willing to do that work. They're not willing to see how part of the crisis is how we as activists are responding to the crisis. And so all of a sudden we're in these um, you know, general assemblies and we're fighting with each other about nothing when we agree on 95% or more, you know, uh, ideological political premises. And it's partly because we see the political work as the end of the work as opposed to the political work is the beginning of the spiritual work. And also the spiritual work is the beginning of the political work. Simultaneously, these, both of these things are true because they're feeding each other. No, nothing is going to test you like a struggle. That's, that's where your identity is born. Um, it's very easy to, to uh, meditate in the absence of a context. And the animate living universe is showing you a context, which is you have 10 years left to live in this way. And there's consequences to the way we're living. It's not just it's going to happen in 10 years like it's some external thing. Destruction is happening now. 200 species a day are going extinct now. And what are we doing about that? And, and the inner work is not enough. It's not to say we shouldn't do it, or of course, no. It's just the, the meditation is the prerequisite for the revolution. So, the piece that I'm missing now, that I hope to capture with you, is that we left your family of origin as the Ishmali family in Vancouver with three children, all boys. And uh, we picked you up as you had done some important political work in New York and then decided to create this uh, Brave Earth community in uh, Costa Rica and created the rules as a way to engage with the neoliberal capitalist situation. And we've talked a little about how you hold yourself and, and life spiritually at this time. So the question I'd like to ask you is, how did you get from your family of origin to your current understanding? What were the major stages of spiritual evolution that you went through? Uh, 
I guess I'm, I'm always hesitant to the idea of biography and story because it, it reifies the ego, right? In, in the sense that I am... I know that, but you said in the rules <laughs> that you're all about stories, right? Yeah. And us being humans, yeah, yeah. we respond to stories. No, exactly. And it's non-dual. the audience that will listen to this no, it's non-dual. will be I totally, fascinated by your story. That's part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I think part of it was the, the rejection of Islam yeah. was a big part of, of the journey. Um, and... Uh, Essentially knowing, and I think we all know this, whatever tradition that we are born, even if it's an atheistic tradition, that uh, we, we are fed half-truths. Mm-hmm. And that the, the sort of recognition that you are living in a culture of half-truth where the adults are lying to you, um, partly because they don't know better, is, is actually an important part, rite of passage in the mm-hmm. Kali Yuga. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I recently said to uh, a rabbi friend of mine, uh, in the context of a joke, uh, you know, there was an ex-Muslim, an ex-rabbi, and an ex-Christian, uh, and we had a Quechua man and a Lakota elder in the car. And he said, correction, not an ex-Muslim, ex-Christian, and an ex-Jew, a heretic Muslim, a heretic Jew, and a heretic Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting about his reframe is that we chose to incarnate in these lines, partly to hold them accountable for the, the fact that their, their, the initiation of these traditions was contextually relevant to their time only, and then they calcified the tradition. And so Muhammad made sense in 600 AD, and after he dies, what happens is the, the bastardization of his truths into an institutional religion in for power and money and a role in the hierarchy and all the other benefits you had being a caliph. But there was also benefit in it, in the sense that the the vibration that he could access when he entered unity consciousness could be spread at least breast to breast, at least person to person, Uh, not necessarily through scripture, but through embodiment. And, And it happened. You know, there was a renaissance in the Middle East and hundreds of tribes came together and violence and war was alleviated and you know he Muhammad was a feminist what most people don't know and shifted the power of the balance of power towards women in the culture and you know all of those things and and they also um, from my subjective perspective uh, the the just like capitalism religion has passed its expiry date you know and so also holding that truth, in you, and and I think both the sort of rejection of Islam and and in you know innately knowing that the the sort of higher truth of unity consciousness that was originally embedded in this in the morphogenetic field of this culture had been violated, uh, and then going to the to other paths. So I studied a lot of Taoism, and um, I was never that interested in Buddhism personally. Um, but uh, shamanism and uh, going to the direct experience. And, and for me, the, the central pillar of that was the psychedelic experience. And, and uh, re- realizing that the, the, the fear um, traditional religions have of the sacraments is that uh, you wouldn't need the religion if you were actually in symbiosis with that. So plant. have you done a lot of the sacraments? Um, 
I would say a lot's a relative word, but I, 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 uh, I've, I've uh, done enough to be in reverence of plants and mm-hmm. to see plants as my teachers. And I don't see it as a form of consumption. Right. And I don't see it as a form of something that is outside of me. I, I, I do it within the spiritual container of, um, of reverence and respect mm-hmm. for both the tradition uh, that I, I do and don't believe in tradition simultaneously. Um, because so, I believe in etiquette, uh, and part of the etiquette of approaching these plants and approaching these cultures is to do it in a way that um, you treat them as the way a Muslim or a Christian or Jew would treat God. Oh, parenthesis here, but a significant one, because we are in this moment when Michael Pollan's book, Changing Your Mind, has mm-hmm. come out. I did two New School conversations with Michael Pollan, and I'm also close friend of Robert Jesse, who's um, central to his book uh, in terms of uh, being the, the, the wise strategist behind a lot of the research that has brought about. And I would, without referencing anybody else, but it seems to me that quite a few of the people who are thoughtful about these sacraments right now uh, have considerable concern about the explosion of interest in it, the commodification of it, if you will, and how uh, it has the power to do great good. Mm-hmm. But as it moves through the culture as a whole, um, it will um, be ingested. These, these powerful medicines will be ingested by people whose uh, personalities are not particularly well organized in different ways, and they may cause harm to themselves and harm to others. So because you're so aware of this key moment in human consciousness, the darkness and the light, and because the psychedelics have been a powerful dimension of your own accessing of truth, what is your counsel about how we should hold the power of these medicines as they disseminate widely through the culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm not a believer in uh, legalization, mm-hmm. um, but I do believe in decriminalization. Mm-hmm. I, I think what legalization, if you look at the, the MAPS world, you know, these ty- the, the multidisciplinary, whatever, mm-hmm. place, psychedelic society, mm-hmm. um, is, and, and what they're trying to do with MDMA, for example, um, where that leads, we've seen, we already have a test case in where that leads, right? We've seen what happens with, with marijuana. And what it does is it increases corporate power. It um, commodifies the morphogenetic field of that plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gives access to uh, people who are not initiated or are not necessarily ready to uh, commune mm-hmm. with, with that plant. And so I, I think we should be, of course, pushing for decriminalization um, and that this work should be kept sacred and outside of the realm of capitalism. I, you know, I don't even think it necessarily should be charged for, though I understand in a neoliberal globalized society where we've gutted every other means of exchange from mm-hmm. barter to fishing to uh, gifting to that, 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 that's necessary. And of course, with the exploitation of indigenous peoples and, and, you know, 
genocide and mm-hmm. etc and and then saying there's only one way to acquire goods and services which is us debt based capital that that is going to happen and so i think all we can really do is be very mindful and sensitive of and aware of the logic of capital that has to be the starting place for all of our analysis spiritual or political and uh, the the second thing we, sh- we 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 can do is to try to protect the indigenous cultures that uh, hold these medicines because if if they get decimated and we start accessing these medicines outside of the symbiotic 5000 year 10000 year plus um relationships that original peoples have with these medicines then you're not in the container of that culture and you're in the container of the broader culture which is sick you know and and you said you didn't know what the word wetiko means uh wetiko is a first nations north america turtle island word for um cannibalism oh. and it was literal cannibalism and when the when they first met the western europeans and they came to their their uh continent the only word that they could come up with that many tribes independently came up with and used to describe western european culture was wetiko mm. it was a culture of cannibalism they would eat their own children including you know they they saw rivers and uh, trees and you know as their kin and so uh, as soon as the the wetiko sort of globalized consensus mainstream culture uh, is the container in which these things are held um it's very dangerous and of course non dualistically those of us who are aware of that culture uh can navigate it mm-hmm. because if you understand the logic of the system it's not the, the point of knowing the logic of the system is not just to hold that knowledge but it's it, it's to behave in an etiquette that is contextually relevant for that context i love the word etiquette that you're using i love that very much you you can't necessarily be in good etiquette if you don't understand the consequences of your action and steven jenkinson for those who know steven jenkinson who's a he was in the death trade uh he was a hospice worker who who sort of had uh, evolution from seeing a thousand plus people die in 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 his care um he says uh he talks a lot about the etymology of words and he says the the root word of a uh, awake is not how new age people think of awake as you know woke or conscious or whatever it's um comes from the idea of uh, the same idea of the awake of a boat the the fanning out and the the a is an amplifier so it's it's somebody who is to be awake is to be so aware of the consequences of your action or actions and so we there's also a way to use duality non-duality to be able to live in the juxtaposition of working within a system that itself is destroying life and uh contributing to to spiritual work that makes you feel whole uh, and in some ways that can be a comfortable position but what i would say is that that position is not going to last very long and it it's n- no one's work except your own to know when the omens present themselves to tell you that um or, or to show you uh that that the the time is to evolve beyond that
and it will just happen. And and there's also no way, one way, because how could there be, to, to be a revolutionary in this time. And some people will do it through the existing structure, and some people will do it outside the existing structure, and um, some people will do it just through embodiment. Uh, you'll just be in their presence, and you'll understand that their vibration is of such a signature that that itself shifts you. And, and there is no right way to do it. But what I would say is, uh, we we the, sp- the 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 sort of evolutionary work happens in the inquiry of the consequences of our action, and the most quote unquote awake people I know are so deeply sensitive to the consequences of their actions in every way, like the way they prey on their food, they understand that. Uh, entire globalized supply chain and fossil fuels and uh, slave labor and, uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions from having food shipped around the world came on this plate. And non-dualistically, they're simultaneously deeply appreciative of it uh, to the point of reverence. And, and that, you can call that spirituality or you can call that awareness of consequence. And, and that's the only thing I would sort of presence, um, mm. presence there. So what have we not said yet that you would like to bring to the table before we close? Let me, let me start, and I'll thank you again at the end, but I was so eager to do this with you, and I'm so grateful that we've done it, because for me it's a way of getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just hold this incarnation of your being uh, with such gratitude that you're here. Um, And there are many aspects of your being. And like you, I'm an introvert. And like you, I deflect praise in all forms. I'm not interested in it. But one of the things that I love about this incarnation of your being is your extraordinary gifts with the careful use of language. Um, I have a friend named Tony Serra, who's an attorney in the Bay Area, uh, who describes himself as a linguistic warrior. He's remarkable. He's taking care of all kinds of interesting people. And you remind me of that linguistic warrior. It's like that capacity It's not just one word you use, but the whole syntax, the whole framework, this thought-out set of interactive ways of reconceptualizing reality feels so fresh to me. It it has, I love, like the way you played with the word awake. That's just a good example. It's not awake like conscious, it's like the wake which is consciousness of consequence like that. that's just one example but there are thousands and hundreds at least in the way you present things so I come out of this conversation with a sense of being awakened in that sense with a sense of the rippling consequences of being in the room with you for my own thought for the thought of people who hear this And not because people need to be anti-capitalist or, as you say, drop out or anything else, but simply um, we are facing this enormous, unprecedented 
world change. Mm -hmm. We're facing it, mm -hmm. we're in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many people who are fully aware of it. And even a tiny proportion of those who are aware of it have begun to do the kind of inner and outer work that you're doing. So in my own focus on the global challenge, the human dilemma, whatever we want to call it, this encounter with you is significant to me. Um, and it is my prayer that we find ways to continue the engagement because I feel I have so much to learn and I feel course, your voice in this is, as you say, it's, you're just trying to figure it out. You're not, you know, and I'm not overpraising mm. you. I'm just simply expressing a sense that your voice in this dialogic process brings something very fresh and useful to me, to the table. So what closing thoughts would you offer about uh, where we've gone today? So this, this might be uncomfortable, but I, I think uh, maybe what would be worth doing is talking about the idea of identity politics and race for a mm -hmm. second. It might be a good way to close because I think a lot of the elements of what we're talking about um, merge into this. And it's just a very uncomfortable topic for people. That's no, good. Um, and uh, especially in the sort of um, wake of this Jordan Peterson sort of phenomena, you know. Uh, um, yeah, is that okay with people? Do you want to yeah. talk about um, Okay, so... And it, it does tie many threads in, 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 in this sense, which is we're now at this place where uh, it's also just to say a, a political responsibility, right? Uh, in, in the sense that uh, I'm a brown man, so I'm going to use my privilege as somebody who's non-white to talk about whiteness, but not in a form of education, but because... Um, what else would we talk about right now? Mm -hmm. You know, in, 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 in that sense, right? Uh, and also to, to say that the context of this room where there is a majority uh, white room, and, and for many people that's uncomfortable, and, and it shouldn't be. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Al Nurlada and host Michael Lerner. And that the, the sort of Jordan Peterson reaction, for, for those who don't know, is he's a Canadian psychologist who kind of became this YouTube phenomena, and he, he pretends to be uh, quite rationalist, uh, but, but he's, he's, he's not rationalist. He's deeply misleading and manipulative. Um, and the thing is, he's right about some things, and actually many things. And uh, what happens with people on the left and feminists and people of color is that they completely reject him. And they say, you know, he's a racist and he's inciting race wars. And, you know, the only people that listen to him are young white Trump supporters. And, and that's also true to a certain extent. But we also have to understand how deeply seductive what he's saying is. It's the same reason we have to understand how deeply seductive capitalism is and how deeply seductive the idea of entrepreneurialism is. Uh, you know, and th these are seductive ideas. And, and so w why is it seductive? So what he's basically saying is like, you, 
young white male are not uh, to blame. Uh, you are under attack. And so there's this idea that uh, of, of sort of self-pity. Actually, they're right. No, the immigrants are taking our jobs and uh, um, our opportunities are not created and the feminist movement is uh, emasculating me and this sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, re- reaction and that is going to be one reaction if we as sort of allies uh, d- don't sort of get our house in order mm-hmm. let's say and and so so maybe the, 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 the starting premise of this is like this is not sort of um, uh, white versus non-white uh, capitalist versus non-capitalist etc this, this is uh, our options as a civilization are this growth or life Mm-hmm. That's it. It's we continue to grow a global economy that is destroying all life, uh, or we are on the side of life, mm-hmm. right? So that, that, that that's premise one. So premise two is that uh, by just by acknowledging our incarnations and our privileges, we are honoring our ancestors. The point of bringing up whiteness, and it's not done well, especially by people of color, is, is not to uh, reify your whiteness, because there's no spiritual point in that. The, the point of this work is to transcend the subject-object duality, right? To get beyond the idea of the other. That's what we were supposed to be doing. And that's what happens when you stop separating spiritual work and political work. These things are not separate. The, the idea that you could separate spirituality, politics, economics, this is just an illusion, right? All of these things are deeply interconnected. Just like our crisis is not a climate crisis, it's a spir- spiritual crisis and cultural crisis, a crisis of identity, a crisis of meaning. And so then we come to the next sort of point in this ladder, which is um, we have to acknowledge the incarnations we have chosen. And that's a there's a spiritual normative bend on that, which is the point of acknowledging the fact that you have chosen to incarnate as a white male or a white woman or a brown man is to honor the fact that there was a decision on some higher plane, on some spiritual level, that that occurred. And so you're not hiding from it, and you're not using it as either a crutch or an alibi. You're using it as just a recognition of fact in the material realm to enter the non-dual realm. And what it does when you say to other people that, yes, I, I know I've, I acknowledge that I've incarnated as a white male, for example, is you're, you're from a mimetic framing perspective, you're framing them into a spiritual frame, not an identity frame. And, and then the, the, the next thing is to acknowledge that capitalism uh, does have structural drivers of violence. <laughs> you know, that capitalism is based on genocide and oppression and violence and essentially a head start for Western Europeans who invented debt-based capital. And it's not a Western European, even when I was talking about Wetico, it's not a Western European versus non-Western European thing anymore. It's globalized. So these are, memes are like the cultural equivalent of genes. They're just ideas. So. Ideas like cannibalism, ideas like the invisible hand, uh, ideas like trickle-down economics, ideas like perpetual growth on a finite planet, these are just ideas. And so when we disidentify from the idea, we disidentify with, with 
uh, our ability to be part of that. And it doesn't mean we don't take responsibility. But what happens when you, when you say to a person of color, I understand capitalism is a form of, or, or a woman, let's say, as someone who identifies as female, I understand capitalism is born out of patriarchy because of the historical circumstances we talked about earlier. Hierarchy was enmeshed, we rewarded certain type of behavior, we then said there's no other way to acquire goods and services except this money that we invented. So, of course, there's going to be a privilege to, to men. Of course, there's going to be a privilege to, to white people. Capitalism is a form of white supremacy. That's why it's the sort of war it is. That's why we incarcerate black people. That's why we, you know, into a privatized prison pipeline. So just by acknowledging that, what we do in all of our spaces is we just broaden the tent. People are much more willing to sit down and hang out with you and go to your spaces when they know you understand the reason for their plight and oppression. That's the only reason to understand, not, I'd say that's a major reason to understand capitalism. Of course, your own liberation being the main reason, because if you don't understand the oxygen which is suppressing you, you're not going to be able to get out of it. You're going to go to ideas that are not commensurate to the problem, like conscious capitalism. But when you understand how the system actually works, which is not that difficult, you just look around you, uh, you, you sort of free yourself from that. And, and then the conversation can start. And, and the reason to presence whiteness is not to make white people feel insecure. And I, and I think a lot of people of color don't understand that. And they're, they're acting out their own wounds and their own um, trauma on other people who are, uh, like we said, when you access reality at its highest level, you realize there's only one of us here. And we've chosen to play these roles. And if we can come at this from this non-dualistic, more mystical approach, I think we're going to have way different conversations around identity. And it's the same with funders, right? When I meet a funder who's so-called awake and we say to each other, I know you're playing the role of somebody who has money in this incarnation and I'm playing the role of somebody who knows people who need it, you know, it's a much more honest dialogue because now I'm not, um, I'm not commodifying them. And, and this is why the, the embodiment conversation is so important, right? Because I could go be a post-capitalist activist and then I go to funder meetings and I'm manipulating them and lying to them and telling them how <laughs> I did X and then Y happened when I don't even believe in linearity or cause and effect in that way, and I'm commodifying them. And as soon as I commodify them, I'm polluting the morphogenetic field of our relationship. And so this is why this same sort of approach, we can approach identity with, we can approach gender with, we can approach um, uh, sexuality, preference, all of those things, which is the primary process is the spiritual process. Let's just be clear about that. Even if I'm in a room with rationalist, lefty activists who believe in historical dialecticism, I will say the spiritual process is the primary process. We are, are all part of a divinity that is becoming self-conscious and self-aware and is being created through the very act of us gathering in this way. And to pretend otherwise is insane. And I'm not against science. So you've heard me say a lot of things about rationalism. Um, science is the floor of understanding, not the ceiling. 
I agree with the basic premises of what science is. It's also a method. It's not an ideology, even though they treat it like an ideology. And so I'm not against science. I just treat it as a floor of understanding. It helps. It's one language in making sense of the world in this way. But as soon as we see it as the ceiling, the highest aspect of our knowledge, we're essentially amputating all that other aspect of us that is in the knowing. And then the last thing to say is about ancestors. So I've said the word ancestors two or three times in this conversation, and I feel uh, people who come from Western Europe who are forced to come here and flee their homes and, you know, the wound and, let's say the wound before that of being in forced conversion from paganism to Christianity and the cutting off of the, the ancestral lineage there is visceral. You feel it. Just saying the word ancestor, most white people feel uncomfortable because they say, well, I don't have a relationship to my ancestors. And the way you talk about ancestor is different than the way I talk about ancestor. And, and what I'd say to that is, ancestor does not have to be a literal understanding of ancestor. The, if you look at the way uh, indigenous people talk about totems, their totems, right? Like let's say the Haida, for example. Uh, you'll go to uh, a Haida home or community and there'll be a totem and you'll say, well, explain that totem to me. And they'll say, that's where we come from. So, so that, that eagle in the middle of the totem, that's where my mom's family comes from. They're the, the eagle tribe. So the natural world can be your ancestor if you identify in that way. And I'll give you just another cosmology as an example. And, and, I, and I say this partly to say that it's so important that we reclaim our ancestors and we reclaim the lineage with which we came because it's an important omen and clue in this spiritual political work to completely amputate it because we're uncomfortable because other people bring the idea of ancestorhood into our field in a way that does not resonate with us doesn't mean we should ignore it because then we're not doing the karmic redemption work we need to do. So I'll give you just one more example of, of cosmology, which is the ancient Egyptians believed that we had both star ancestor DNA and physical ancestor DNA. And there was a negotiation among these two DNA lines. So your star ancestors picked the, the line that you came into and they said, well, that line has this type of karma, slave, owner, slave, oppressed, oppressor, whatever. And this body is a useful, will be a useful body. This context that they're being born into, Nairobi or Bolinas or whatever. And that negotiation was a merger between two very powerful ancestral forces. But the Star Nation ancestors were um, the, the kind of dominant ancestral force. So it's more important than your physical DNA lineage. So it's another cosmology to say, we do need to reclaim these concepts in whatever way is relevant to you. But if we don't, we're going to be orphaned. And to be orphaned or to have one aspect of ourselves amputated is not very useful to a world in revolution. And if we look at the way science looks at DNA, you know, we understand about 7% of DNA since the Human Genome Project, since 2000. We, and they call 93% of our DNA junk DNA. And it could, and they're now understanding that 
this junk, so-called junk DNA has a very powerful electromagnetic resonant field. And so it could be our ancestors are just living within us through a non-materialist resonant field. And that's the way this redemption of karma works itself out. And who's to know? I don't pretend to know. I, I, all I'm saying is that this is an important part of the inquiry. And um, we can't really have the, these full conversations around identity unless we're having these conversations on what lineage are we holding, whether it's in the seen or the unseen. And when we talked about Eros earlier, you know, maybe Eros is one indicator where our attention goes, where our desire goes, uh, and how we, our desire and our Eros is in relationship to the more than human world, the so-called natural world. Uh, there's also something very powerful in that coming together that we, we perhaps should be in inquiry of. Elnor Lada, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you. having me here. Thank you for your work. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Alnur Lada and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.